which brings us to today's sermon. As you know, I'm in a series talking about different scriptures I've been convicted to pray and about praying scriptures. And let's think today about conviction, confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Conviction, confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Married for 16 years and with two great kids, Kurt Stanzel seems to have it all together. He has a successful investment counseling business, and he's a founding elder at his church. And he's a sex addict. Kurt is the first to admit it. For years, Kurt struggled with pornography. It started with magazines, but eventually turned into visits to XXX theaters and strip joints. Kurt kept repeating a cycle of guilt and remorse, then prayer and repentance, only to find himself back at it again. Eventually, Kurt found an accountability partner named Stan. At first, Kurt held back, being less than honest about his problem. But when he finally confessed, telling Stan the whole truth, Kurt immediately felt a weight lifted from his shoulders. He was on the road to victory. I began to understand what shame does, Kurt says. When we Christians try to hide something in the darkness, we give Satan incredible license to work in our lives. So the more open I could be, the less of a hold Satan seemed to have. It's confession, it's repentance, it's conviction. And in that case, Kurt had an accountability partner. But it began with confession. So today we're going to have a discussion, a conversation about conviction, about repentance, about forgiveness, about confession. So to start, I want, to, I want you to think about some time that you have had to forgive someone else. Maybe you can recall someone that you had to forgive. Maybe you can recall someone disrespecting you in a way that they said something and you had to forgive them. Maybe you can recall someone stealing something. Maybe you can recall something like this nationwide commercial where this person hits somebody in a parking lot with their car. I'm going to ask Ken and Nancy to go ahead and send this commercial up. I'm, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I, I didn't even... That's why Nationwide Insurance offers accident forgiveness, so your rates won't go up just because of an accident. It's one more way. No, I didn't do that to advertise Nationwide. I did that to advertise a way, you know, of a commercial illustrating not forgiving someone. She really was not an example of forgiveness. You know, Nation was, or at least Nationwide was, or at least they say they forgive. So have you ever had to forgive someone? Or turn it around. Maybe you've been the one who have had to repent. Have had to, you've had to apologize. You've had to ask for forgiveness of someone else. You've had to repent. You know, we're in a sermon series in which I'm focusing, focusing on scriptures that I've been convicted to pray for my children, my grandchildren, my descendants. These are scriptures that I pray for myself and the churches I serve, as well as the church universally. You know, the emphasis I do not want to be on 
praying like I pray. I want the emphasis to be on praying the scriptures. You know, if we value the word of God, if we believe the Bible is inspired word of God, then we ought to be praying these scriptures for our lives and for our children and for our family and for our nieces and nephews and for our church. We got to be praying that God will help enable us to live out the scriptures. You know, I pray that we are repentant in a Psalm 51 way. I pray that we are convicted in a Psalm 51 way. I also want to squeeze into this sermon that I also pray that we have a Psalm 119 passion for the word. A Psalm 119 passion for the word. So I will often pray something comparable to this. Again, the emphasis is on the scriptures, not what I say. But I've been convicted to say something like, Father, I pray that myself and Megan and Mercedes and Abigail, as well as your future spouses, also our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, I ask that we will live by conviction. That we will live by conviction of sins of omission and commission. I ask that we will live by conviction of right and wrong. I pray that we will be repentant, like David in Psalm 51. We can say with David in verses 10 through 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with the willing spirit. Father God, I also ask that Megan and I and our descendants will live with a passion for the word, a passion like the psalmist in Psalm 119. May your word be a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. May we hide your word in our hearts so that we do not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen. That's just something I've been convicted, taking those passages and praying them. And I, I, I share them with you so that maybe you can learn, if you have not already, maybe many of you have been doing this, you know, since before I was born, but so that you can learn to take the word of God and pray it. Pray the word of God. Pray these scriptures for your family. My theme today is pray that our descendants are men and women of conviction and repentance in a Psalm 51, 1 through 12 way. Pray that our descendants are men and women of conviction and repentance in a Psalm 51, 1 through 12 way. If you have not turned there, turn to Psalm 51. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Turn to Psalm 51. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. If you have the sermon notes, it's, it's in the sermon notes as well. And, but I, I'll give you a second as I talk to turn to Psalm 51. I'm going to explain more about the background of Psalm 51 in a couple minutes. But let's read this, this repentant prayer of King David. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be whiter, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. 
Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. First, I want to talk about conviction as I'm using the word in this sermon. You know, one definition of conviction is a strong persuasion or belief. A strong persuasion or belief. We can say someone is a man or a woman of conviction. Maybe we'd say that about President Washington or General Washington during the Revolutionary War period. He was a a man of great conviction. You know, we could probably say that about many of our founding fathers. They, they were men of conviction. They, they knew what they wanted to do and what they, they had a strong foundation. They had a, a strong persuasion or a strong belief about what was right. You know, and that is certainly what I pray for myself and my descendants. I pray that our convictions, our strong persuasions and beliefs are rooted and grounded in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I desire that for myself and, and, and Megan and our, our children and our grandchildren, that they're rooted, their, their convictions are rooted and grounded in the Word of God. That's important. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11 and 105. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do we stay pure? By keeping our lives according to the word of God. The Bible, the word of God, is a litmus test for everything that enters our life. It's a filter. For all my life, most of my life, I've had tropical fish. Not goldfish. Those are for fish um, beginners. I'm just kidding. Laura has goldfish. I had tropical fish. I've had African cichlids. I had African cichlids in my office at my last church. I've had Oscars and Jack Dempsey's, if they mean anything to you, angelfish, and, and I bred guppies. Guppies are breeding machines. And, um, and many other just different fish. I've always had fish. I've had uh, the largest aquarium was 135 gallons, and the smallest was uh, 10 gallons. But I've always had fish, and I've enjoyed taking care of fish. But the goal of taking care of fish is to make the aquarium self-made. Maintained, to have a good filter system. And sometimes you have protein skimmers that, that work things out. And if you're having salt water, you want a, a wet, dry filter. And they're really expensive, but they have these biospheres that keep good bacteria and let the bacteria grow. And they have carbon and they have these different things to take out the bad. The Bible is our filter for our life. As everything comes in, as we're going out throughout the week, we are absorbing all types of content, whether it's from the news or whether it's from TV or from, from our friends or from our peers or whether, whether it's from those we work with, we're absorbing content. And the Bible is our filter. The Bible is our filter. You know, I've learned more about filters again because we got this, um, Steve calls it a starter pool. 
It's a 12-foot wide pool that's just three feet deep, and it blows up with air, and it's just enough that the kids can get in, and we can get in with them and cool them off. But the filter gets clogged really quick, so you got to take out the filter cartridge and, and clean it off. How are you filtering your life? How do we want our children and our grandchildren to, to discern right from wrong, to discern from everything that, that they absorb throughout the week? The Bible is that filter. I mean, that passage I just read, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, says it. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How do we stay pure? By keeping our life according to the word. How do we live by conviction? By making the word of God a part of us. That's the way we live by conviction. We need to have our convictions firmly grounded, firmly rooted in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That no matter what is impacting our life, no matter what is entering our mind or entering our eyes or entering our ears, we are comparing it with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. How does whatever we are hearing match up? So I'll pray that for my descendants, that we are men and women of conviction. And I will ask that we will be convicted of our foundational beliefs that, you know, of right from wrong, you know, of, of that type of foundation, but also that we are convicted and repentant of sins of omission and commission. Now, I've said that before. Sins of commission, they are, um, these are sins, these are things we don't do that we should do. Sins, things we don't do that we should do. Like, you know, maybe God is trying to convict us to help somebody in need. And we don't do it. We refuse to do it. Well, that's not right. That's a sin of omission. Maybe God is calling us to, to attend Sunday school. And we're not doing it. Or attend a spiritual disciplines class. Or a, or a small group. Or, or something of that nature. And we're not doing it. Those are sins of omission. Maybe God is con- trying to convict us to... To, to spend time with him in his word and we're just, we'd rather sleep in or, or watch the news instead. God is just waiting there, waiting for you to spend time with him in prayer and in Bible reading, what we might call spiritual disciplines. And we're not doing it. Those are sins of omission. Maybe he's calling us to the mission field and we're ignoring his call. By the way, you are all called to a mission field if you're Christians and that's the area around you. So you get the point about sins of omission. It could be a sin of omission to not share the gospel with somebody. God has placed you in people's lives to share Jesus with them. And you are one way or another. Do you realize that in not sharing the gospel, you are representing Jesus? Later on, maybe somebody else will share the gospel with them. They'll receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they'll think, I knew so-and-so all those years, and they were a Christian, and they never bothered to open up their mouth about Jesus. So Jesus apparently is not that significant to them. We share what's important. We share what's important to us. Sins of omission. Sins of commission, you get the point with that. Sins of commission is quite obvious. There are things that God, uh, that God calls us not to do, and, and we do them. We tell a lie, or we, or we cheat, or we even tell a white lie, or we, or we steal, or we, or we do something like that, or we watch a Browns game. That's a big sin. I'm just kidding. Um, just thought I'd throw in some humor. Sins of omission and sins of commission. So now I want to give you some background to Psalm 51. Let's get back to Psalm 51. And, and if you're... Now, Steve goes to Brown's game. Well, not anymore. He, 
He used to go to Browns games. That's a really big sin. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's just going to the enemy's territory. No, I'm kidding. Let's go back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You know, Psalm 51 is about David, the famous king of Israel. And here is King David. You know, you know something about King David. You've been taught about King David since childhood for most of you. He's the one who, who slew Goliath as a, as a young boy. He might have been 12 years old going against this, this mighty warrior, and he defeats him. King David was God's anointed king of Israel. He was, he was called a man after God's own heart. He conquered many enemies of Israel. You know, he, he was the one who expanded Israel's borders, unlike any other. But then in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 13, we see King David commit this awful sin. Then he tries to cover it up, and then he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. David had some free time because the others went to battle. But David stayed home. If you read 2 Samuel 11, that's what it says. The kings go out to battle. His armies go out to battle. But he stays home. If it was an old movie, you could hear the organ music playing right there. David stays home. Something is going to happen. And it's not good. Idle hands, what do they say, are the devil's handiwork. And they will be for David. David, King David, is about to, as Johnny Cash would say, fall into a burning ring of fire. You know the song. During the night, David is walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw this beautiful woman. Her name was Bathsheba. She's taking a bath. He asked his men, or his people, who is that young lady, that beautiful lady? They say, that's Bathsheba, the wife of, that should have been a clue, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He said, I want her. Go get her. They brought her to him, and he committed a, a great sin sleeping with her. Later on, she ended up being pregnant. And so this sin that he thought was in secret will now be out in the open because everybody will know about what he did. And um, so he invites Uriah the Hittite. He wants to cover up the sin. And he's the king. So he can do different things, you know, how he wants. So he invites Uriah the Hittite, her husband, back from the battlefield, says, come home, spend some time with your wife. You've been a good soldier. Go spend some time with your wife. And he says, no, I can't do it. I, I cannot spend time with my wife while my men are in battle, risking their lives. So he refused. So David, King David, mighty king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, sends Uriah, the Hittite, back to the front lines of battle. And he sends him with a message for the commander. Put him on the front lines of battle and then have all the soldiers pull back. Put him on the front lines of battle in the most heated part of the battle and then have all the men pull back. They lose the battle. They lose. Even though they're Israel, they lose. But the message goes back to David. Uriah the Hittite died in battle. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14. Uriah died. So in this psalm, David has been confronted about this sin of adultery and murder. And this is his prayer of confession. Actually, if you look at Psalm 51 in your Bible, it gives a little subscript. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now, let me tell you, just as a little extra bit, Nathan the prophet had some guts. I mean, if, if you are a Christian, and if you're, as most of you are, if not all of you, and, you know, God may call you to do some things that you just don't want to do. And God may call you to do some things you don't feel up to doing. 
Nathan the prophet is going to King David, and King David just did what all the other kings would do. You know, the kings of the land, they take, uh, they take what they want. That's what they do. But King David is not supposed to be like the other kings. He's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. He's supposed to be God's anointed king of Israel. And the Israelite people, the Jewish people, are not supposed to be like the other pagan people. But still, Nathan had to go confront him. He had to have been a little bit nervous before this conversation. I mean, just imagine what that was like for him. I mean, King David had not been acting himself lately. Nathan the prophet might have known King David as a man after God's own heart. But taking this other man's wife, having her husband killed, that's not the way King David's supposed to act. And then Nathan has to go and talk to him about it. I just imagine that scene. Nathan, if you read the passage in 2 Samuel 12, wonderful passage, uh, Nathan begins with this great you know, parable or story. And then Nathan ends the story saying, you're the man. Quite a punch. And David is incredibly repentant. David is, you know, honestly repentant. He is respectfully repentant. He is rever- repentant in a reverent way. He is repentant. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We got to confess And God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's look at David's prayer again. Let's walk through this a little bit. Notice that David asked for God's grace. In verse 1, David asked for God's grace. He says that he wants God's grace according to his loving kindness and according to his compassions. That's in verse 1. According to God's compassions and according to God's loving kindness, he wants God's grace. David acknowledges who God is. David knows that we have a loving God. David wants God to blot out his transgressions, wash him from his iniquity. In verse 1 and 9, we have this idea of cleansing him from his sin. Verse 10 and 10, he wants the perfect filter for the pool, the perfect filter for his spiritual life, the perfect filter. He wants to be clean again. And we see that idea repeated. You know, this is an instance in the Bible where there are three words for sin. Three words used for sin. They're all separate words with separate meanings. Iniquity is a wicked actor thing. Iniquity has the idea of a gross sin, a gross, a wicked inact, a, a wicked actor thing. And then David uses the word transgression. Transgression is crossing a, a law. Actually, crossing a moral law. So David uses the word iniquity, the word transgression, and then he used a generic term, sin. And sin has the idea of missing the mark, missing the mark. David, the famous king of Israel, acknowledges in a heavy way that he messed up. He did not gloss over anything. He was totally transparent before a holy, righteous God confessing his sin. Maybe some of us don't mess up like King David did. But maybe we are not as transparent and reverent in our confession either. David, in great humility, goes before God in confession. In verse 4, he says that he knows his transgression, his crossing of the law. In verse 4, he says that he sinned against God and that God is right and a just judge. You get that? God is a right judge. God is a just judge. You know, many of us, we, we try to trivialize our sin and we try to think, oh, no big deal. Well, when we do that, we are also trivializing God 
He was a righteous judge. David wants his sin blotted out. The idea of blotting something out is like erasing a contract. David wants his sin to be erased. In a Babylonian text, an ancient Babylonian text, there is a comment that the king may order that the tablet of, quote, my sins be broken. The king is able to order that the tablet of my sins be broken. In Hammurabi's, Hammurabi's uh, code, an illegal contract for the purchase of a soldier's home may be canceled by breaking the cuneiform tablet. So, you know, they had some history to that in ancient cultures, but it was never thought of with a god. In ancient cultures, there was never the thought that you could ask God or a God to erase your sins. That's what David is asking. And praise God, that's what happens to us through Jesus Christ, through his blood atoning for our sins. David wants to be washed in verse 2. And later in verse 7, he talks about the idea of being washed again. In verse 7, he talks about being purified with hyssop, which was a plant they used to purify uncleanness. David wants to be cleansed. Think of the effects of confession and repentance. I read the following. By the time Howard Schultz had resigned from Starbucks in 2000, the coffee chain was experiencing steady growth. Eight years later, when Starbucks was reeling from a bad economy and stiff competition, Schultz resumed his role as Starbucks' chief executive. He faced a challenging mission to lead a turnaround. In an interview about his return, Schultz commented that before they could move forward, they had to deal with the past by honestly admitting their mistakes. Here's an excerpt, an excerpt from Schultz's interview. This is what he said. When I returned in January 2008, things were actually worse than I thought. The decisions we made were very difficult. But first, there had to be a time and we stood up in front of the entire company as leaders and made almost a confession that the leadership had failed the 180,000 Starbucks people and their families. And even though I wasn't the CEO, I should have known better. I am responsible. We had to admit to ourselves and to the people of this company that we own the mistakes that were made. Once we did, once we did it was a powerful turning point. It's like when you have a secret and get it out. The burden is off your shoulders. Confession. Repentance. David is confessing. He's repenting. In verse 8, David prays for joy again. David wants the joy. David has probably lost the joy because for a year, about a year, he had this overwhelming guilt of the sin that he committed. And guilt is a powerful thing. There's a whole chapter on guilt and dealing with guilt in pastoral counseling books. But David wants that joy back. He actually says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. You know that hymn. Elaine said I could sing, so I could sing it for you. You want the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. Where? Down in your heart, right? I'm so happy that Jesus found me. I want the joy in my heart. I lost the words. We'll go on. But David wants that joy back again, that joy of his salvation. He had lost it. David asked for a clean heart and a right spirit. David asks that he not be cast from God's presence and he doesn't lose the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, David's predecessor, King Saul, had gone after his own interests and had lost the Holy Spirit. David knew how King Saul had been corrupted and lost the Holy Spirit. David does not want the Holy Spirit to leave him. 
Think of what a precious treasure we have as Christians in having the Holy Spirit living inside of us. I find it interesting that after confessing, David asked for help to keep obeying God. To keep obeying God. David is totally honest and transparent before God. He acknowledges his epic failure. We'll call it that. Epic failure. He asks for a cleansing. He asks that he doesn't lose his close relationship with God. Research psychologists have found there are at least three situations when we are not ourselves. Three situations when we are not ourselves. First, the average person puts on airs when he visits the lobby of a fancy hotel. The average, per, average person puts on airs when they visit the lobby of a fancy hotel. Second, the typical Jane Doe will try to hide her emotions and bamboozle the salesman when she enters the new car showroom. Fancy hotel, car showroom. Number three, when we take our seat in our church or synagogue, we try to fake out the Almighty that we've really been good all week. When we take our seat in our synagogue or church, we try to fake out the Almighty that we've really been good all week. You know, God forgave David. David was honest and transparent before God. Are we honest and transparent before God about our own sin when we repent? Do we live by conviction? Do we pray that we ourselves and our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on are men and women of conviction and their convictional grounding comes from the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? And when we mess up, we repent. We acknowledge it honestly in repentance. Praise God that Jesus came from David's lineage and Jesus died that we all can have forgiveness in a relationship with God. Amen? David was repentant, and through his lineage, we have complete and total forgiveness, and our sins can be erased through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we can have the righteousness of God in him. 1 John 1.9, once again, God will forgive us and cleanse us from all our sins if we confess. God will forgive you. Even if people will not forgive you, God will forgive you. Even if we cannot forgive ourselves, God will forgive us. How are we doing with, with repentance and confession? We need to pray that God helps us and our descendants be men and women of conviction. We must ask God to help us to be men and women of conviction. And that we know right from wrong and we are grounded in the Bible. But we also must pray for conviction of sins of omission and commission. And that we respond like David in repentance. Have you honestly and transparently given yourself to God, first and foremost? Surrendered your life to God in a prayer of repentance and confession? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior? The whole drama of Scripture, we call it a meta-narrative, the grand story made up of many smaller stories, is all pointing to Jesus. Teaching us that God created us to be in a relationship with Him. But our sins separate us from God because God is holy. I've said it before. I'll say it a thousand times. We do not think our sins are that bad because we are comparing ourselves with our neighbor or with the person we hear about on the news. We do not compare ourselves with God Almighty. Our sins separate us from God. Through the Old Testament, we see that sins cannot be removed by good works. So paying the price for sin 
Jesus died and rose again, and everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And life that's eternal means we will be with Jesus forever. You know, sometimes we do give our lives to Christ, but we don't really. We say a prayer of repentance and a prayer of confession, and we think we're all good, but we never really surrendered our life to Christ. We still have our own self on the throne and not Jesus. It's time to let Jesus be on the throne and make him Lord of our life. Let us pray right now. Oh, Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that we can learn from King David. We can learn this this repentant prayer that he prayed. We can see great humility in this prayer of confession. And Lord, I pray that we can learn from David and we can be repentant in like ways. Lord God, if there's someone in here, or maybe many, that needs to surrender, may today be the day of salvation. Lord God, we can tell you that we are giving our life to you in a prayer such as this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned and I've violated your holy righteous standard. I recognize that my sins separate me from you. I recognize that you want to, you desire to forgive me for my sins. Jesus, please come into my life. Help me to live for you. Help me. I am trusting you, Jesus, as Lord and as Savior. I believe in you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by you. Jesus, help us. We need help just like David. We need help living for you. Help us to be men and women of conviction. Help our children and grandchildren and our church family to be men and women of conviction. And may our convictions be grounded in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And may we be repentant like David here in Psalm 51. Give us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.